as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Right. James Gurney, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Vance. How are you doing? So while you have a British accent, you are actually yeah. living in Atlanta, Georgia, and you are a PhD that studies something that is all around us, but almost nobody knows anything at all about, which are bacteriophages. And you and I have gone on uh, a wild road trip across the Southwest. We've been on uh, podcasts together. We've known each other for years. And I was really yeah. interested in getting your perspective on what's going on with coronavirus, both from the academic science perspective, but then also just how's it impacting my buddy that I haven't seen in quite a few years. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. It, it feels a bit full circle now. I think we first met when you came on my podcast, what was it, like five years ago now? Yeah, that's probably uh, right. Yeah, the yeah. League of it's, Nerds uh, with Miles Powers. That was it, and yeah. <laughs> and that guy, yeah. Buck. That guy, that guy. Um, no, yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm doing all right. So yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, you've summed it up pretty well there. I'm a, I'm a research scientist. Or I'm a postdoctoral research fellow is the technical title uh, down in Georgia Tech uh, in Atlanta working on phage therapy research. So um, I'm going to explain this like you never heard it before. I know you, we've talked about this before, but so um, my, my research basically asks the question of like, can we take a, a virus that infects bacteria and use it as a treatment? And this, this might sound fanciful to some people, but this is like a century old technology now. This was first described in, in 1917. Um, it fell out of favor because we did something much better. We discovered antibiotics basically, you know, 10 years later. I think Fleming did in 28 or 29. Um, so that sort of the need to rely on a sort of complex, squiggly biological organism was superseded by the fact we had this chemical, this amazing chemical, which just kills bacteria, doesn't kill humans, works really well, was reasonably easy to purify and make a big ma mass amounts of it. Whereas the, the phage was like, well, we have this thing. We're not really sure what it is. It might be a virus. It might be a bacteria. It might be a chemical. Um, does it work on this bacteria? No, it doesn't work on that bacteria. Does it work on this bacteria? Yes, it works on this bacteria. And this sort of this unusual little biological entity that no one really understood what was going on for, you know, the best part of a, yeah, 50 years until we really understood, okay, these are viruses of very specific viruses for very specific hosts of bacteria. Every bacteria probably has one of these viruses, but you can't just take one and say, oh, it's going to work on all these, all these bacteria. It's specific to its host. You know, it's so. an interesting thing because you think about the world as bacteria, viruses, uh, plant life, human life, and maybe you could have some like more nuanced uh, characteristics in there, but when it comes to phage, we never learned about it in school. And it mm -hmm. is like a very weird construction. It's got like a tube on the top with this yeah, geometric yeah. figure on the on the top of it. And it grabs a little bit of its own DNA and injects it into bacteria and then makes the bacteria mass produce yeah. the DNA for the phage. And then it explodes the bacteria. And then that phage goes all over the place. And there are way, way, way more phages than anything else in the world. But the thing that was interesting to me is that we're not really quite sure, are they alive or not? Which is yeah, an right. interesting question. <laughs> well, it's the same any real virus. Like, it depends where you draw the line of where they are, where, where things are alive or not. So I call them biological entities. My, my actual, my boss thinks viruses are alive. And that's not like, like, oh, he doesn't, he's crazy and thinks viruses are alive. It's sort of like his, where he draws that very fine line between this is living material and this is not living material. He's like, well, viruses, they reproduce, they, they reproduce with selection. They, you know, they have, um, their own genetic material. The only thing they can't do is survive without their host. And that's sort of, you know, and they also don't really have metabolism. Well, some of them do have metabolism. So it's, you know, it's when you start looking at, biology at this at this level it becomes incredibly clear just how fuzzy our definitions of what is and what isn't alive actually is like i could wake up tomorrow and be like now they're dead and i could wake up the next week and be like no maybe they're alive and it's there's no clear or fast answer here about what what biological life actually means yeah it um, kind of strikes me as the as the weird like um the closer you zoom into something the more that you know it the less you're convinced yeah. that you know what something as simple as alive or dead is, on or off, zero or one, because as it turns out, not all of the features of our beings around us follow the yeah. same rules that we do. Definitely, definitely, it's it's, it's you know it's um there's compartments of different things that you like. We we say there's these six or seven things you need to be considered alive, and then you actually when you look at it, it's like well. 
it's just a smear <laughs> across like the planet. Um, my favorite other thing to talk about when we you know have these discussions is mitochondria. So um, in America, mitochondria taught as the powerhouse of the cell, which I always find funny. When you mention mitochondria to any American, like, oh yeah, the powerhouse of the cell. It's like, it's this weird, like American Canadian thing. You guys, they don't have that in Europe or the UK. That's not a thing. Um, but so mitochondria are like, are the powerhouse of the cell. They, they make energy for us and every, pretty much every single eukaryotic cell, like you, you, me, plants, everything that you can see, there's a mitochondria making energy. These about 2 billion years ago were free living bacteria. At some point, another bacteria came and gobbled one of these up and they decided to live in symbiosis as opposed to like eating it. And that that led to like 2 billion years later to having enough energy to make bigger, bigger cells. But the, the, the thing that's mind-blowing to me is the fact that this, this was once a free living bacteria, alive as anything else on the planet. Like it was alive. It was a living organism that had been alive for 2 billion years through evolutionary history and then it got eaten and it didn't die. But over 2 billion years since then, it's evolved to be dead. If you take a mitochondria out of a cell, it's dead. It's not a living material. It can't survive by itself anymore. It's no more alive than a virus. But that's that's happened through evolution. Evolution has selected for something to be dead. It's just <laughs> like like how you're like, and like you, you think about, you think about like what other what other survival. organism grabs another organism and makes yeah. it not just like work for me as a as a slave, yeah. but like actually incorporated in and becomes a part of the way that your own dna yeah. writes out and produces more mitochondria yeah yeah I mean, well, this, is, this is a really cool thing there's um oh whose book is it it's maybe nick lane um he talks about how you know we well, he didn't discover this it was, he just popularized it but part of our part of our genome has bits of the mitochondria dna in it and obviously the mitochondria also has its own genome it has a little bit of bacterial dna still in every cell it has a little, little circular chromosome that's how we know it was a bacteria because it has a little circular chromosome. It has the same 16S kind of like um, bacteria, like a, a very specific gene. Um, but it's it shared some of its genes with us, but not all of them. So it, like, it looks like at any minute it's really just to pack up and go home. Like take it's got it's got its own genome. I'm going to leave you. I don't need you. You know, it's this little thing packaged away. So it's it's I could I could talk about this for days, but it's it's an uh, an amazing inside of that just how powerful natural selection is to see okay it's it's put this gene here and that gene stayed here there's a reason why some of the genes are in our chromosome and some of them are still in the mitochondria and it's all it's all due to natural selection so as you're studying phage research what yeah. drew you to that i mean people have never I, even heard of it yeah i have wanted to work on phage since i was about seven years old i think it was um i i remember the moment i was i was my mom picked me up from um from after school she worked i was at an after school club and i t i asked her because she, she's a microbiologist um i asked her, why don't they use viruses to kill bacteria like as you know this little seven-year-old kid who had no idea what i'm talking about and she's like well they do it's called they call they're called phage uh and then she sort of explained a little bit about me about phage to me and she bought me some some book about uh, animal life, like like the mechanisms of animal life. Like so, it was like they took everyday animals and like made them into like machines, and then you could open that you know pop up book kind of thing. They open up and they like you'd see inside the animal, and they had at the back was a couple things on viruses, phage, and bacteria. And I just just fell in love with this idea of like these things that are the enemies or things that make you sick are out there. They're somewhere in nature, and then. You know, I, I went away to university, you know, 10, 10 years later, I studied all those things. I studied um, bacterial communication for my PhD. And eventually I was like, I got to the point where I was like two months away from finishing my PhD. And I was on Twitter, you know, <laughs> PhD shouldn't have loads of time to just hang out on Twitter. And someone had posted a job uh, to work on phage therapy research uh, in Montpellier in France um, on the organism I was working on during my PhD. I was like, oh, cool. I love phage. I've had these, these ideas. I'll, I'll email the guy. And like, at that point, I was like, I, you know, I hadn't, hadn't seen very many people working on phage, like out and about because it was, it's quite, it still is quite a small field. It's only like only a handful of researchers who have the money to work on it. And most people are working on it are either doing like I am now a mixture of evolutionary studies and phage therapy. And, there isn't a huge amount of people doing other things on it. What do you think is possible with phage research? 
Uh, therapy. It, yeah, that's a great question, right? It's um, stopgap's not the right word, but it's it's going to pick up the slack from antibi- antimicrobial resistance. Like, I'm not one of these people who think like phage are the, the solution to everything. Uh, we have the solution to everything. It's antibiotics. They they are amazing drugs. They are so good. They work so well, and we've kind of squandered them and used them inappropriately. I think we're going to use phage to basically pick up the pick up the pieces where we've made mistakes. Um, phage has limited uses. Like there are cases I know I've met people now, and I'm so fortunate. We can talk about this later if you want. I've met people who have been given the phage I work on in the lab, uh, and it saved their lives. Um, that's amazing to me. But we should have never got to that position. We should never be in the position where it's like we have to use something experimental because we've been so irresponsible with the the, the magic bullets we have of antibiotics. And when you're talking about being irresponsible, you're saying we had antibiotics that were grown essentially started from fungus where we figured out like, hey, this chemical produced can wipe out all of this bacteria and it can wipe out good bacteria and bad bacteria just knocks it all out. But the problem is if you keep using that over and over and over again, you're going to find a few bacteria that they aren't knocked out by that by that yep. antibacterial uh, property. And so then they start growing and then you have what people call superbugs. And yes. phage, if you can find the right one, which that's the real difficulty, it has to be hyper-targeted to a particular bacteria. Mm-hmm. But if you can find the right phage that attacks the right bacteria, then antibiotic resistance may not kill us all yeah well it's never it's never gonna kill us all it's just gonna it's just gonna be really terrible <laughs> like like this uh well there, there's two things right the, the two things i worry about antimicrobial resistance the first is like we're seeing now there's a pandemic happening and we know there are secondary bacterial infections from COVID 19 people are getting infected with um bacteria that are then taking advantage of the weakened immune system or the terrible immune system stuff that's happening and causing uh, sepsis. People, that's how some people are dying right now. They're dying from a bacterial secondary infection due to due to the COVID nineteen virus. So we've always said, I say we've always said, a lot of people have said for a long time, the 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 risk of antimicrobial resistance will be within the next pandemic happens if an antimicrobial resistant pathogen bacteria is in the population spreading around. We're going to have increased mortality due to that, and that's what we're seeing right now. Fortunately, the the, the bacteria that are, are actually killing people right now, I say fortunately, people are dying, but they're not particularly antimicrobial resistant. We're not we're not seeing an AMR comorbidity happening with uh, COVID nineteen. But it, again, what we're seeing now will happen again within a hundred years with almost certainty, unless we change the way we live quite drastically. There will be another worldwide pandemic at some point so today's problem still be the future problem the other issue is um i have a better chance of dying from an antimicrobial resistant uh, sorry an antibiotic resistant bacteria than i do from cancer in my lifetime by 2050 more people will die from antimicrobial resistance than currently die or will be will be dying from cancer and we think about all the people you know who have, like, unfortunately have died of cancer. And then you say, okay, well, more people you know by 2050 will have probably would have died from an antimicrobial resistance bacteria infection. That's a startling thing. And I'm yeah. instantly drawn towards finding some way to disagree with you, even though yeah. I have no idea what the numbers <laughs> well, are, right? So, like, that, my, so that's, my immediate yeah, that's from, reaction is no, that's not right. No, <laughs> that's not I, – well, it's, it's very possible it's not right. That's from a, a, a scientific report. For, called the O'Neill Report. Uh, I think it was published six or seven years ago now. Um, it does take some liberties with the modeling, and it does take some. You know, I I I think that report is a little overestimated, but it's one of the biggest wide-scale reports we have. Uh, and in the absence of better, more conclusive evidence, it's it's worth thinking that this is not with this is not outside the realm of possibility. It's just it's um it's a model that we, we that people have developed, um, but. I always like to point this out when I'm giving talks because again, you know, people look at me and go, "Oh, that's that's a big number," and it's like, well, it doesn't matter. Today, I know people are dying five miles from me down the road in the hospital because of antimicrobial resistance. It's happening today. It's not. A, it's not like one of these nebulous things. Oh, in the future we'll have this problem. There are children, elderly, middle-aged people, people with like minor 
inflections will die because of antimicrobial resistance. So this makes me think of a uh, question that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now, which is we are going to die, all of us, unless we find some some super amazing way to do healthcare that's unconceiv- inconceivable yeah. right now. So when we start talking about you are going to die of these things or this is your likelihood of dying, it can come off as uh, be afraid. So now listen or fund or whatever to my idea. How should we divide the line between those two things? I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) As exciting as that response is, I, it's really not my expertise. I, I, I'm very insular. I work on, you know, I work on what what I would consider a fairly wide range of things. I work from bacterial communication, infection dynamics up to, you know, understanding policy of viral, using viruses to treat bacteria. There's a fairly wide gamut of things I have to be involved with in, in like when compared to most other scientists, I'm doing a, a wide range of things, but I also don't know, like, I'm not, I'm not an economist. I'm not a, you know, I'm, not much of a philosopher <laughs> so like i i i think we should be funding um more uh, uh, i say we should be funding more about but like public education about sciences and stuff but then i see what people so far what we've done you know um we mentioned the podcast earlier i i always feel so terrible now like you know we miles and i spent four or five years weekly talking to you know a couple thousand people and it's all been for really nothing because now we're in a position where you know, <laughs> the leader of the free world is telling you drink bleach um it feels very weird to have like such a small effect on the on the planet um so i you know my opinion may maybe not worth anything i think we should i think we should be funding more uh antimicrobial research stuff but i don't You've caught me in a trap here because I don't like to use fear to sell people things. I I I often see this as like a, a pseudoscience technique. People will use fear to 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 sell something to someone. Um, like you see it all the time in like the anti-vaxxers and the you know, anti-GMO people. Like they they try and let trying to say that that's designed to make you afraid. And say I have the cure. I have the solution. And I I I can't all good consciousness say well I have a cure. It's like I don't. Like that's the whole point of science. We need to work out better ways forward. But yeah, that's been. I think you've just done something really humble. That's easy for a guy like me to do because I don't know. I cannot read the papers, and it's not that I'm not an intelligent person. It's that I did not spend the years and years and years it takes to understand deeply what a p value is and how the yeah. statistics. So I can kind of look Imagine, at something and take an Imagine abstract. P values. <laughs> Yeah, but I can take an abstract and I can say like, yeah. okay, that sounds like a pretty good narrative, but I yeah. don't really know. And I'm comfortable saying I don't mm-hmm. know. One of the weirdest things that's happened in the coronavirus is that every single person involved in this spare, like the 10 people that studied this particular type of epidemic yeah. is actually really vulnerable to the Dunning-Kruger effect where they've read oh, yeah. a few things, they have a story in their head, and anybody that assaults it is assaulting your tribe. So people become deeply entrenched. And it's like, I don't understand how anybody can be confident because I wake up in the morning. I'm like, Hey, the sun's shining. I bet coronavirus is pretty much done now. And then I go downstairs and see a few things on Twitter. And I'm like, Oh man, we're in the thick of it. Now things are only getting worse. So I, uh, my, my small contributions to the coronavirus, I, I helped uh, out the German YouTube channel that, that makes science videos. I helped fact check their script about the virus. Um, I tend I tend to be their go to person for like bio microbiology stuff. So for for your listeners who don't know, there's a there's a YouTube channel called Kurzgesagt. Uh, it's German for in a nutshell. So people know uh, it is in a nutshell too here in the US. Yeah. yeah. Um, they make excellent videos about a wide range of topics. They typically try and be as like middle of the road as they can you know they try not to take sides about certain things obviously obviously they you know that they they are they have an opinion uh they have an editorial voice let's say but for like the biology stuff like they, they typically come to me for asking is this is this correct and at the beginning of february i was like oh so there's this virus <laughs> starting uh in china uh it's probably gonna become a pandemic 
do you guys want to make a video about it at some point? If you do, let me know. If, I'll line up some experts. Because that's the other thing I do for them. I line up experts and say, you have this topic. I know an expert in that field. You know, for, like we did one about um, GMOs, and I, I passed them to Mary Some Somerville. Like, you know, here's an independent scientist. She's not. She doesn't work for one of the companies. I, she doesn't work for a unit. Like, she's an independent researcher. She knows what she's talking about. Um, for the CRISPR-Cas one. Um, I, I lined them up to talk to a uh, a malaria geneticist working in UCL who, who was like they were talking about her work. It's like the, the the work you're talking about. I know that scientist. I'll send them an email. You know she can she can fact check your your script for you. Um, so I asked offered to do this for the coronavirus, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, we don't like to be sensationalist. We don't like to you know, make clickbait topics. They don't, they don't want to be the, the company that's like trying to chase a story. They they want to make cool things when they have their time. So like, we're not going to do it. It's like fine, cool, you know. I I, I respect that. And then two weeks later, they're like, yeah, about that video <laughs> idea. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, so I I went to talk to a couple of people at my institution. Uh, like I tried to talk to three people. One of them, not surprisingly, he was too busy. So he works on uh, vaccine development for coronaviruses. That's his. He was doing this before. He's a world expert on coronaviruses. Um, his entire lab is basically being given millions of dollars like put trying to the the the, the, um, the government's like seeded tons of money trying to like get things you know going a bit quicker uh, really cool research really great guy um obviously was busy <laughs> so i was like okay this video is going to get seen by about 10 million people that's the typical size their audience their channel has i was like that's too many people for me to comfortably be the expert voice so i tried to go and find some of the people and i found you know i found some epidemiologist people and so if you said same sort of thing. I don't trust myself to have 10 million people reliant on the message and, you know, I'm going to say. Um, so we, we, we fact-checked the script. We, we went through it multiple, multiple times. I ended up reading probably 95% of the new research that came out on coronavirus since January. Um, so <laughs> the end of, uh, end of March, I was probably the leading expert on coronavirus, <laughs> like my, my, just, and just molecular pathology, not, not like every paper, just anything that talks about how the virus actually makes us sick. Um, so like it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting, I, I always feel weird saying interesting when I'm talking about how viruses kill people. Or I often say, I mean, oh, it really is cool. interesting. And, yeah. and like, it's, it's actually probably the most interesting thing in the world right now is how does this thing work? And yeah. And uh, how scared? Should, how much of our life should we switch to be able to respond to the way that yeah. it kills people? That ultimately is the most important question in the world yeah, yeah. right now. So I think we're doing a, on all that topic. I think we're doing a pretty good job, um, and we can get back to that. Um, so yeah, so I, like my my little part of the coronavirus of that side was basically fact checking the script. It got I think it's got seen by like twenty three million people now, which is fantastic. And you know, I, I again I said to them, what I because it takes two three weeks at a minimum just to make these videos because there's a ton of animating this voiceover there's script checking and i think this is the quickest they've ever gone from like script idea to video out um and it's a team of 15 16 people so you can think like they're, they're working 24 hours a day basically for two weeks to get this out and i was like it's gonna you know we have to think where are we going to be in two weeks time what is the most what's the best information for people to have in two weeks time um so that's that's why the video I think hopefully, you know, the, it, yeah, we timed it pretty well. I, you know, you could, if you had some idea of public health policy, you could see that the lockdowns are going to start coming into effect in America, in the UK. Um, I think Italy already had one coming into effect. And so we, you know, Spain as well. So it was, again, it was, a, there was a, a conscious decision on our part to say, okay, what is the best information to have in two weeks time for, for people who are going to basically going to be starting to be asked to go into lockdown. Um, I think we did a pretty good job there. Um, so as a person that studied the molecular pathway and you've yeah. watched how much people know, you've watched the news, what mm -hmm. is something about the disease that people don't realize in the way that it works? Ooh, I think, I think a lot of people don't realize that it is a, there's a huge component of the immune system is actually what causes the damage. Um, the, the virus has several proteins inside of it that directly interfere with how our immune system communicates with itself. So the immune system is, an, is at its heart, a communication system. It tells cells, go here, do that, go here, do that, go here, be that. It's amazing. Super complicated. Um, 
And it's even, you know, again, not, not actually my field. Immunology is not what I do, but I love it. It's, it's amazing. Um, I have such respect for people who can just sit there and like recite off these like interleukin pathways and work out what's going on. It's amazing stuff. Um, but there's at least a, you know, three or four proteins in Corona like viruses that interfere with the system. That's one of the, like the, um, the, um, symptom of losing your sense of smell or sense of taste. That is a direct result of one of the non-structural proteins in coronavirus. It interferes with, is it either TNF alpha or INF alpha, INF, like interfere on gamma. It interferes with the signaling in your immune system and that leads to a loss, loss of taste. Yeah, I didn't just, know that. I mean, yeah, I yeah, heard right? that as a rumor, but no, <laughs> yeah. no indication as to why yeah. that's true. Yeah, it's one of it's one of the proteins we know. There's a protein there that that interferes with this pathway. Um, it's the same reason when we, when you have the flu, you often lose your appetite. Like that's not that's not because you feel sick. That's not like oh, I feel groggy, so I'm not, I don't want to eat. There is literally something interfering with the the signaling of your immune system, which downregulates your appetite part of your brain. Wow, I wonder if we could use that in good times to make yeah, it so right? people don't want to <laughs> overeat. I think you'd, you'd also the problem is you'd also get a fever. <laughs> like if you start playing with your your brain would start making your body cook itself. Um, so as a guy that understands the metabolic pathways and has yeah. access to scientists, how have you responded once you found out the disease yeah. was out there? What did you do personally? So in early February, I contacted my family, my friends, and said, "FYI." This is coming. It's going to be big. Now's the time to prepare for things. Now's the time to get, you know, make sure you have a month's food supply. Make sure you have some water. Make sure you know where all your health insurance documents are. Make sure you have your medication lined up. Like my father had a heart attack in a year and a bit ago. So, you know, he's obviously on still on medication. It's like, okay, go to the pharmacy now and ask them for three months of supply of drugs because you're going to need it. You know, this is, this, this is the things you need to get done right now. Um, and like I had, uh, talking to the podcast, like I told, I told both miles, buck this buck took it to heart and like basically went out and bought like a survivalist kit. Like, you know, he filled up his, his gas tank. He had food for months and miles being miles like, ah, it's fine. So like, he <laughs> didn't, didn't do anything. Um, and then like three weeks later when the lockdown was happening, I was like, oh, so how, you know, how are you guys getting on? And, uh, yeah, Miles was a bit sheep. like, I didn't listen to you. And Buck was like, everything's, everyone thinks I'm a prophet because I knew it was coming. Because <laughs> all his friends thought he was insane because he was going out and doing these things. Like, and I, what worries me the most about that is that it was obvious. It was super obvious to anyone who was looking that this was happening. And, People just didn't do anything. And I, I get why. Like last time this happened was swine flu. And again, the media were like, oh my God, swine flu is going to kill us all. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. But the difference was there were a lot of the actual experts were on the, the news or the radio saying, it's going to be bad. It's not too bad. You know, it, it should be okay. And there's maybe a few sensationalist voices saying it's going to be terrible and stuff. But the majority of the experts were saying for swine flu or MERS or SARS were saying, it's a problem if this happens or it's going to be a problem if this happens. In early February, I knew there's a guy who is an excellent epidemiologist called Mark Lepsich. And I, I don't know him personally, but I know multiple people I work with directly have met him and know him personally. And they were like, he is not the sort of person to say, <laughs> to be quite mean here. He doesn't like to say anything controversial. I don't want that to sound bad on him, but you know, he was, he's very phlegmatic. You know, he's, 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 sensible he's he's sure himself all this sort of stuff um and he was on twitter saying basically this is going to be a pandemic this is going to be terrible and as soon as i saw that i was like yeah screw it like he's right like this is this is we have to we have to start taking this seriously um and that that was the biggest difference for me we had we had people who are i would consider sensible um experts incredible experts on the topic saying this is going to be a pandemic and they were not listened to why like how like how what is the point of having these people you know in our world if we're not going to pay attention to what they're saying well so the flip side of that could be that if you listen to the people that have the narrative that this is so bad that we should lock everything down people taking that to heart are shutting down a business that they've been running for 30 I years and that 30 years is, I mean, work and blood and sweat and tears 
and yeah. uh, it's it's all put up on on uh, uh, the the reason that of, we could believe yeah. it was the people that didn't used to freak out are freaking out, and so therefore all the work that you've put in, you know, throw it in this dice and see what happens. We yeah. may come out in a month or two. So I can understand why people didn't uh, I, want to agree with it. I get that. And I, and I, I should take that to heart more than I normally do. Um, I have, you know, there's two things I would come back with that as saying um, one and counter to my own point again, like, you know, when we talk about expertise, I was, I was watching, you know, obviously my, my university is still working. We're still having weekly seminars. I was watching a talk yesterday about moss and uh, global warming and sort of like nit nitrogen flux to an environment in northern east Montana at some point. I know nothing about any of that. Like, and I am in the same building department center as these people. So it's not like, oh, we're the same university or we're the same biology department. We share the same center, which is like a group of 10 handpicked academics who are all meant to be roughly in the same sort of field. I know nothing about what she was talking about. And it was, it was all great work. I don't want to like sound like I'm saying it was bad work. I, it's just, it's not my top of the expertise. I knew the, the, the technique she was using. I knew the statistical analysis she was using. I have no idea of when her, before she told us, like how this change in this nitrogen would actually have any sort of impact. Like there are so many layers of expertise required to fully understand what, what these experts are saying. And, you know, again, I'm, very lucky that I'm expert enough in infectious diseases to see these people are really are the experts. So, you know, again, I should take that, I should take that more to heart. Um, the other thing I would say is like with, you know, <laughs> being the filthy socialist I am, like if only there was some sort of tax system we paid into where during hard times, the government would support us and you know, <laughs> pay back into the, pay back into the community. So that, that to me would have been the best response would have been, okay, well, there's a pandemic coming. It's I was about to say it's completely unexpected. It wasn't. It was. It was guaranteed to happen. That's the other crazy thing, right? Um, this was one of your previous podcasts, Black and White Swans. Fantastic, like analogy. This was definitely something we knew was going to happen. Like we've known for the better part of a hundred years, these things happen. We should prepare for them. Um, we have we have no justification not to have been ready for it. Um, why? Why didn't governments take a more direct role in saying, okay, this is something – if we don't support the system now, it will collapse. And that only, that only benefits very few people who have then have the resources and capital to come back and you know, buy it back up again. Like we saw that in 1939, Great Depression. Who makes money in the Depression is the very, very wealthy. So, so yeah. – uh when have you seen the the video of the two doctors that YouTube took down? Have you seen this? No, but I I I saw people complaining about it. So this um, is an interesting thing, right? So yeah. people are saying, listen to the experts, you know, medical and epidemiologists, and then yeah. there were two guys out in California that said we're going to take data that our urgent care facilities have um, provided us because we see patients. And we're going to tell you what we're seeing and how we react to that. And the internet immune system went <laughs> bananas on them. And yeah. uh, on the one hand, they went from having, I saw it on, I think, Saturday night at 800,000 people. By the time I woke up at 8 a.m. and it had 380,000. And, yeah. uh, and, and now it's up to 5 million and YouTube took it down. Yeah. When that starts happening, when people say, hey, there are some ideas that the institutions mm. are not going to let us hear, yeah. you're a guy that studied conspiracy theories for a long mm. time. Does that right? benefit the scientific community I, taking that down or or I like how should we know. think about this? I don't know. And I've always had this thing. I really hate saying an idea is dangerous because in reality, no idea, ideas are not dangerous. How people use ideas is dangerous that's the dangerous thing so it's like i i i don't know i don't know what they said in that video um my my understanding from again from people who i respect who were sort of saying this is the issue with the story is that they were basically they were sampling a subset of um i basically a biased subset so they have they have patients who are definitely sick doing you know they're, they're looking at a very small subset of think of like survivor bias like if you only if you only study people who are confirmed sick you find very different things. Like if you, um, if you ask how many, like 
hypothetically, let's say you have two groups of people and you say uh, group A smokes and group A and group B doesn't smoke. And you ask group A, okay, run up this flight of stairs, we'll measure your heart rate, group B, same thing. And then you ask how many cigarettes group B, uh, group A actually smokes. And they, they, they are typically under-report because people like to under-report stuff. So your risk to like how much cigarettes will hurt the, 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 the ability to climb up and down stairs will be um, lower than it should be. If you then take a group C and give them how many cigarettes they said, <laughs> they said you say, okay, well, that you can then do the control there. So it's, again, there's probably a um, some sort of bias in, in in the sampling they were using. Again, I'm not actually even too sure what they said because I, I, I don't want to sound mean to medical doctors, but they're not specialists in this topic. Medical doctors are specialists in treatment. They're not specialists in how diseases necessarily spread or how infection actually works and stuff like that. They are, they are specialists in keeping people alive in certain circumstances, not in how the, there are some medical doctors who, you know, I don't want to tar them all, but the majority of them are not microbiologists. If I've, I've trained doctors in microbiology and some of them are terrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting system that we have set up in the West as far as medical doctors um, getting the purview of like, they know all things health, yeah. but there are a lot of things like nutrition or how do the bones and muscles attach and how does that all work yeah. together that they get a small amount of lesson. But the thing that I would say everyone should take away from the two video, the two doctors talking was they spoke with intelligence Mm -hmm. Um, they spoke with, uh, passion and with telling yeah. a story and they had millions of people watch. Part of it was because it was good news that we all want to hear. Part of that yeah. was like, Hey, somebody is telling me uh, th this isn't the black plague. This isn't the yeah. most terrible thing ever. But another big part of it was they were like, you can do what you want with this information. We're just going to present it to you. Yep. And I think the scientific community has done the is you know, this is what we know is happening, and therefore yeah. the world ought to react this way. And that creates mm -hmm. um, a suspicion that yeah. people are using data to, to force an, an ideology. And I think we have to, like, we have to be careful of that, right? Like, um, one of the things we, I, I, I personally believe one of the things we need to, to bring us out of this is, is contact tracing. That would be an amazing thing to have. But then the you know the, the other side of my brain is like oh god no like I don't want I don't want them to know my data like that I don't want that to happen and then it's like well okay how much what is the value currently of having that system in place what is the the future issues of losing that liberty because again I'm you know I you know I joked earlier I'm a, a lefty horrible socialist I do believe that that the 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 bill of rights America has is amazing like. I'm always so annoyed when Americans throw away their liberties. <laughs> Everything is like, no, you have so many. Don't do it. Like, what are you doing? It's crazy. Because not every place um, has them, even in the Western yeah, right? world, right? Yeah, like the yeah. the the freedom of the press and freedom yeah. of assembly that does not exist even in it's, quote unquote yes. free countries. Yeah, and again, free, freedoms a smear of things, right? Um, but again, I, I I fully agree. Like there are that we we have we we shouldn't rush into like surrender more freedom just because we can right now and it might help in the short term and it would help in the long term as well there are but there are other solutions to it as well and i, I yeah i'm i agree that we should be cautious about how much we do but i want to go back to that thing about you know the internet um what did you call it internet immune system yeah yeah right it's amazing how how effective that can be at just shutting down any discussion. Um, I think, I think part of it is there's a very big incentive to, to monetize controversy, right? Like from, from right from the top, from like CNN and on you know, news, news, huge billion dollar corporations to, if I'm a, a Twitter account handle or a YouTube user, if I make controversy, I will get eyes on that thing. And, it doesn't matter what the topic is. All all our media is designed to do is to commercialize controversy, and that's what's happened here. I think that's what's happened. The thing, like the only reason they got eyeballs on their thing is because they were saying something potentially controversial. If it was, you know, if it wasn't controversial, no no one would be having having any say. And that's that's not. <laughs> That's not a good way to decide public policy. It's not a good way to decide, you know, taxation or anything. That's it's it's 
we have to at some point work out how to get out of the situation that we found ourselves in. And it's not, this isn't like a left or right thing, like politics wise. That's, that's again, it's a false dichotomy. Like I don't understand how we, how you arrived in a place where I do understand, but it's complicated, right? How it's become so easy to say, okay, well that's a left idea. This is a right idea. That's if you don't agree with us wholesale, you're out, you're gone. Um, the the guy the 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 guy from the genetics company you're talking to the other day again like Kevin McKernan like, you're talking yeah, about yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I sent you a message saying oh he's talking bollocks here um, I believe that like again but I I you know the other clips I've seen he said some, he's obviously a very intelligent guy he's obviously done incredibly well he's you know he's not an idiot but if I was to make this a topic I would just oh the guy's an idiot he shouldn't you shouldn't listen to anything he says. I think he should be more careful what he says, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't shouldn't be allowed to say some of the things he's saying, right? And you know, he he talks about how he doesn't like the idea that vaccination is, has no liability. Um, that's because free, you know, he was talking about free market stuff again. I'm not an economist. I'm sure he knows more about economic. You know, he's he's run companies. I've I've run a lab. Um, but in my in my position is like, no, okay, well, the reason we don't do that is because if you didn't if you didn't have freedom from uh, liability you'd have no vaccinations being made and people would die and i think i think on wholesale it's probably better that we we have that system we we typically end up in places where we have the um the best of a worst situation right <laughs> we like democracy is the best of the worst type of every every type of way to govern people is terrible but democracy is the best of them of the terrible ideas it's the same with like how we currently legislate vaccinations or how we currently most things we have to find something that's not the is the best worst solution out there you know i'm struck but with the uh internet immune system is the fact that this is actually a new immune system that has come online that we're yeah. as human beings barely it's like uh it's like taking on the mitochondria and, and incorporating it into your own biology because on the one hand, the the pandemic would not have been possible, the shutdown, I don't think, if you didn't have the internet. If you didn't have a way for people to rapidly spread information and yeah. to be able to hear from a whole bunch of different points of view, to be able to grab news, not just at noon and 5 and 10, which is when the, the old way was doing it. And there are some pros to it. You don't have the, you know, the the yellow journalism where that gets us into a battle in Cuba because two newspapers decide they want to make something happen. But on the other hand, you also then have both the, the proliferation of conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. but then you also have people that are narrative gates and people that are saying the only, the only views that we are going to accept or allow in here are the yeah. ones that have already been a part of the official gatekeeper network and there are some ideas that are so dangerous or so wrong that a small group of people are going to knock them out. So th I think it's that this immune system has not worked itself out for how mm -hmm. to do this cleanly. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, it's, uh, th th there's another tenuous link I can make here to phage. Um, so, um, part of the, you, you know about, you know about CRISPR Cas. Yeah, go ahead. Though. Yeah, CRISPR-Cas is uh, the bacterial immune system. So the the way it was discovered, I, I should say discovered, it was about five or six different groups in like early 2000s show that it existed. It's um, It takes little stretches of DNA from viruses or uh, plasmids and, and inserts it into the bacterial genome. And then when a new bit of DNA comes into the cell, it literally like scans against it, like control I find to see if it can find a match. If it finds a match, it then binds that and cuts everything up and destroys that incoming DNA. So the, the bacteria is able to like become resistant to a phage, you know, through an adaptive immune system. It, it literally learns what to become resistant to. Um, some very clever people use that as a way to like, okay, you can target that. Obviously that you can, if you have that bit of DNA in that, in that enzyme that finds it, you can then target it and then tell it to cut there. And now you've got a way to edit specifically down to a base pair. That's how CRISPR-Cas it does genome editing. It started from, um, <laughs> this is another thing about free market economics, right? It started from like people looking at how um, a bacteria that makes yogurt, like it had this weird stretch of DNA in it. Like if we hadn't funded that research, for, like which would never happen in a free market economy, you would no reason to look at this bit of D DNA. We, we wouldn't have CRISPR-Cas genome editing, you know, a billion dollar uh, idea. 
like um so again same thing like the the our, the internet immune system is being primed to like take ideas scan and say yes this fits or it doesn't fit kill it if it doesn't fit kill it and i think you know i'm optimistic optimistic that this is something we're going to move through like we'll get, we're going to get better at it um i don't we, think so man i think <laughs> i think so i have a buddy named ryan butner who uh coined a phrase that i think is a really interesting one and it's called the internet archipelago which yeah. is where instead of you having one giant universe where everyone is interconnected and if i want to talk with somebody from iran before we go to war with them i just pull up a video chat and we talk it through that's not actually how things worked out what works out is that human beings are tribal by their nature and when you find somebody that shares the same yeah. values as you and a lot of times that's like a synchronization that makes life easier for you. You find a group of people, you know how they think. Now, as long as you think that way, you don't have problems in that group. You get to interact and engage and, and yeah. participate with them. But what that means for the internet is anywhere where there are uh, bridges between networks that can't be meted out really well, that you can't find, a, then they split off, go find mm -hmm. their own islands, and then talk about how horrible the other side is. And just reinforce a caricature, which means that instead of us having one large continent or one large universe, it's just a, it's just a whole bunch of islands yeah. completely separated from themselves. And so to, to put my conspiracy hat on for a little bit, um, there was a, a guy came to gave a seminar before before the obviously the whole virus stuff happened. We had an actual in person seminar and he was talking about how these these nodes of communication have basically have been artificially manipulated. Basically, this is this hasn't happened. It would happen in some way by random chance, like you would expect. As you said, Group A and Group B, they don't want to talk, so they separate, and then they sort of they they argue against the imaginary Group A, and that reinforces it. He was saying that there's evidence of like network communication of like um, news information that this be, has been directly manipulated to to reinforce that solution even more so you know someone someone's gaining from this right this is the system wouldn't exist the system wouldn't be in the state unless someone was making money off this <laughs> like, it's the easiest way to get on the rabbit hole right um but i i hope again i hope there's a way through this and there's my <laughs> My hope is that because again we're 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 democratizing information, but then you get into the question of like okay, well, if that information has to get screened through an immune system of like, oh, what's good information, what's bad information, what's right, what's wrong to say, um, and then you have the, again, I don't like you have people who are who are correctly saying some people's opinion, like oh, every opinion is valid. Some people's opinion are that people of color are not human and deserve to die, like that is beyond abhorrent right you can't like i don't think we can live in a society where we say that that bit of information has just as much right to freedom of expression as others and again that's enshrined in the constitution the constitution says you have the right to free speech it doesn't have you specifically do not have the right to hate speech or violent speech the government can't you know the government can't lock you up for saying i think the government should be you know changed in this way but they can say if you if your speech is directly violent or aggressive or hateful it can be met meet, uh, meted against i i'm i'm <laughs> i'm pretty free free speech advocate but again again i i believe i believe we we do put place limits on it and we should and we should we should as a society build protections against people who who do believe that certain people are not human for example or that to me seems like uh, an argument that if if you were doing if you were having a scientific discussion and somebody pulled yeah. in an example from that far away it would be like yeah. okay well we're not talking about the death of people based on you know their yeah. where they came from what we're talking about is people looked at the same information or even different information and came to certain yeah. conclusions Mm -hmm. And uh, now there's a there's a group that's been put in charge of what information is correct or not correct. In this case, yes. YouTube has said the World Health Organization or the CDC. And yeah. I mean, I, for one, listened very intently when they told me masks didn't work if they weren't fitted properly. My wife had bought a bunch of masks for a project a long time mm -hmm. ago. And so we were like, hey, let's give 
all of the masks that we have to the hospital because they are the only ones to use it and know how to properly use it. And it's a lot more beneficial. And so we gave Mm -hmm. almost all of them away and I flew on planes without having worn one. And so now they like a few days later, they come out and change what they were saying. And now I have to say like, well, you know, I'm glad healthcare professionals have that. They're going to use it. They're going to need it a lot more than me. But now I, I just went against my own interests because they Mm -hmm. lied to me. Yeah. And I think, I think that's incredibly dangerous. Right. And I agree. Um, I, I was shocked from the beginning. They were saying masks don't do anything. It's like, yeah, they do. Like I, I, I didn't, I still to this day don't understand outside of them saying there's a scarcity to Mars. So we need, we need medical health professionals to have them. That's to me, the rational way to have that conversation. You say, okay, masks help. If you have Mars, please give them to medical professionals because those are the nodes. Those are the places where the infection will spread or be controlled. Right. Or deaths will be mitigated. Not say, oh, they don't work. But give, like as soon as they said, can you give them to hospitals? Like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> like, if they don't work for me, why are they working for them? That should like, I, again, I told my p- parents, they because the UK still says don't wear a mask. I told them in February 12th, if you have a mask, wear it. Like, and I don't so- care if you feel strange outside. It's the, the, the simple logical argument of like saying, if they say they need them for hospital care workers, then they obviously have some effect. So here's my point. James, yeah. you are a PhD phage researcher. You are like very bright. Um, we have spoken at length with the most, um, you know, in-depth communications education that you can about science. Yeah. Do you think we should be afraid of a, a, a dictate from the large companies mm-hmm. that the WHO and the CDC are the only medical advice that we should have? Mm. because of that track record i mean do do you is there anything they could do that would make them lose that moniker and therefore <laughs> the guys from california whether they're right or whether they're wrong yeah. they never lied to us and told us to turn masks over yeah so this is yeah right this is a difficult place because i still believe that if we follow if you follow the cdc and the who's recommendations as long as those recommendations are based in scientific you know, literature and stuff, we would have a better outcome for the virus. We would have a better outcome. Personally, that may not be true. And that's public policy is not is not necessarily decided at personal levels, right? Like if again, you gave away your mask. If you kept your masks, would you not be better off? Yeah. So but are you are you willing to make a uh, a personal decision or follow the policy? I think I don't. I don't know if you should just listen because I didn't listen to the CDC. I didn't listen to the WHO. Why, so I can't sit here and say, yeah, of course you should always listen to them. No, you shouldn't. You should. If you if you're in my position where you have 15 years of research experience in the field of infectious diseases, I can make some informed decision for my own safety. If I'm talking to uh, my grandparents who are still you know in the UK, we're, we're still going out for walks. Like, no, stay inside, you idiot. Like. <laughs> There's there's different levels of what you can do for different people, but I think again this hits on the fact like your situation in the in a small village in Minnesota where there's 12 people is very different from like you don't need to close the, the local post office there you don't need to close the local thing because probably there's no cases there. Um, if you want to be sure that no one dies, then you close it right. Um, so I, I couldn't, in all goodness, good faith, say no. You should you should always listen to WHO. You should all listen to CDC. I think they have our best interests at heart. They 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 have no reason not to. Because again, um, the the ability of, of of societies to trust these sort of institutions gets tested at these points. And we've done nothing the last ten years but trying to erode the trust in big institutions. And. This, they need trust to, to to work effectively, right? Like if if, if these institutions aren't trusted, yeah. They then the only the thing they have is force, right? If you right. don't trust yeah. the big the institutions, C- the then CDC the only thing you have yeah. is is yeah. we demand has, that you do. Yeah, the CDC has no power, right? And honestly, like if you if you actually go and work out what the CDC can do, because uh, they're up the road for me, so we talk to them quite often, and you know they they've come and give like seminars about stuff, and like if there's an outbreak. Imagine that. Crazy, right? <laughs> There's an outbreak. Um, what can the CDC actually do? Recommend. That's all they can do. They have no they have no power to like like quarantine people or anything. That's that's not that they're not a uh, what's the word they use? 
like the, the FDA can like impound things. They can, they have, they have the authority to actually like restrict things and stop things or the FDA, you know, the CDC can just sit back and say that ice cream's killing people. Don't eat it. <laughs> they can't, they can't go into that store and take the ice cream away. They can just say that's probably poisonous ice cream. Don't, don't touch it. And that everything they do relies on public trust. And much like the, the vaccination thing with like in, um, what was it, Afghanistan where they found a, 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 a Osama, um, when they when what was the name of the seal team six or whatever they called yeah, they zero took dark down, 30 yeah, yeah. yeah that's it they got there they found out information because they were hijacking a vaccine like camp they, like there was a vaccine camp there was taking information from people and using to vaccinate against i believe polio and that pissed me off so much it's like are you fucking insane like why would you jeopardize a the, the the Taliban was already killing vaccine workers, at, you know, for, for for a decade now. Why would you jeopardize a vaccine thing, which will, you know, if that gets out of control and polio comes back, hundreds of thousands of people can die, or you can symbolically go and kill some guy who's been living in a shithole cave for the last twenty years because you you gave him money in the late eighties, his family were rich, you took that away, he became, you know, there's a whole whole weird economic political argument going on there the level of people he can directly hurt or influence is so much more than this goddamn virus that you're you're like causing people not to trust the vaccination efforts i was so pissed off when i found that because it's like we can eradicate polio we could we could get rid of it you know fantastic but if you start undermining the trust in these in these public health policies which is what that obviously has now done because it was it was a cover for the cia or where whoever was doing it It was a cover for them they were literally conspiracy level theory people they're saying no oh, these people are just there to collect information about like taliban leaders it, it's insane and i i'm annoyed that the who and, and the cdc didn't have the adult conversation say no mask will help but they will help more in these in these locations. They will they will stop people who need them from dying much more than help you. And again, that the effect a mask will help you is actually quite small. Like if unless you're sick, wearing a mask maybe will reduce your chance of infection by twenty percent. I wear a mask when I go outside. Twenty percent, great. Um, I had some leftover from doing woodworking stuff, like you know the covered in sawdust, but the the N95 mask. I know how to fit them. Great. If I had a box full of ones, I would still give them away to a local hospital. Um, but we <laughs> – the trust goes both ways, right? They should trust us to, to understand if, if you explain public policy correctly and you are trustworthy, then the population will believe what you say and you know, you'll be able to take them in – I hope. <laughs> I, I think that the one of the really good things that uh, Kevin McKernan said uh, that that really rang true to me is outside of the private system, you don't have the same market forces. So the people that are donned, you are the communications person. You're the person that's going to decide how we talk about things and how we're going to handle it. Like they don't get wiped out if they aren't good at what they do in mm -hmm. in the corporate world. For the most part, if you're bad at communicating, it may yeah. take a little while for them to seek you out, but they will eventually find you and destroy you. And then a new person comes in and they're much better at communicating. See, I I would I would say even even in, in academia, like I am I am coming for people's jobs. Right. Like if you're if you're an assistant professor at a university be afraid because i'm gonna i'm coming to take your job i i, I think this idea that there's no competition in, in academia or, or like public policy positions isn't true there is we, we you know we're hungry we're coming we're coming for you right it's um and if you're bad at communicating your job is on the line if i like um if fauci wasn't doing a good job there's six other fauci's behind him right there's six of the people who are maybe slightly younger slightly taller better looking i don't know they you know but they are they are there and they they will come for the job they will come and take it they will say no this person's not doing an agriculture job. I, I don't i don't agree with that on principle like again from my own position i am i am gunning for people's jobs i am i am working to show that their work is not as good as mine and i will take their job if i can hey fair point man <laughs> yeah I, james um, this has been a great conversation. I was so glad you uh, stopped by on uh, Kevin's post, and uh, I hope we stay in touch. If people wanted to learn more about phage research or stay in touch yeah. with you, how would they do that? 
Uh, they can find me on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way. It's James R. Gurney. Um, also, if you're just Phage Research, there's a Twitter handle called Phage Papers, um, which is a, a bot that just goes and like collates all the current Phage research papers. Um, but there's, you know, there's a hundred great researchers out in the world i couldn't i couldn't possibly list them all who are doing who are doing some really interesting work um if you're interested in like phage therapy work um there's people up in yale probably leading leading the charge on that a guy called paul turner's lab uh he has some of the coolest work and actually going into patients and trying to you know, trying to save lives well cool man i know it is a whole big field of research that opens up a lot of possibilities and hope for a lot of people not necessarily on coronavirus but on yeah. uh, other problems that we face. Hey, man, thank you so much for stopping by. It'll be my pleasure. My pleasure, Vince.